This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Disinformation, misinformation, and lies. How do we deal with a fire hose of mind-warping bullshit? In the age of social media, I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. And look, we've had a perfect storm on this topic in the past month. We've seen the Dominion lawsuit cast a bright light on Fox News' determination to spread election misinformation. And let's just say it straight out, lies. The House Oversight Committee has pulled together a festivist airing of invented grievances about the persecution of the right wing by social media the most recent edition of which was Protecting Speech from Government Interference and Social Media Bias, Part 1, Twitter's Role in Suppressing the Biden Laptop Story. And just today, as we record this in the first week of March, we had Nina Jankowicz, the former disinformation chief for the federal government who stayed in that post for just a couple of weeks after she was hounded out of it by the right wing. And she has since come out just today talked about the year of harassment and stalking and doxing that she has undergone by the right wing in their determination to prove the case that they are the victims of government censorship. And of course, you've heard me refer on other editions of this show to our own experience here at the Beyond Politics podcast with our YouTube partner, the Blue Amp channel, having our most recent episode pulled down. And not only that, being banned from posting any new content on YouTube for a week because we talked about how to expose and discredit election deniers. And they said, well, that runs afoul of our policy about talking about election misinformation. So clearly, this is an awfully hard area to regulate in, monitor, and police. We wanted to go to a definitive source of expertise and information on this topic. Two years ago, Paul Barrett, wrote a study that I'd say is the definitive study on this question of whether the right wing really is being persecuted by the government or by social media platforms. Paul Barrett is the deputy director of the NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights. Paul, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. I wish we weren't going through this little saga, but in a way, I'm not so sorry because it's giving me a window into just how difficult a topic this is. But let's cut to the bottom line up front. Is there actually any bias against conservatives from the major social media platforms? There's no evidence of any systematic bias against conservatives on the major social media platforms, which is not to say that there aren't incorrect decisions made from time to time. And it's not to say that there may be an employee at a platform here or there who brings a certain bias with him or her to work. But what there is not is a broad conspiracy within any platform, among the platforms, between the platforms, and democratic political forces to silence conservatives. To the contrary, what there is evidence, both in the form of research, empirical research, and in the form of compelling anecdotes, that shows the opposite. Wow. That shows that what you have is form employees who are so anxious about the danger 
of conservative backlash if they make certain content moderation decisions, that they bend over backwards to accommodate conservatives, to bend their rules, to keep conservative content on their platforms, and to keep conservatives' accounts live. So that's the somewhat complicated, but I think very poorly understood landscape that we're talking about. Going back to your conclusion that there is not systemic bias against conservatives, how do you know that? You do point in your study to some countervailing examples of just how much Trump was able to dominate Biden in terms of, for example, Facebook engagement or on Twitter, or the fact that Fox News and Breitbart far outperformed other news outlets in the run-up to the 2020 election. So it seems like you have some indications that it's not like conservative information is suffering here. And indeed, there's some anecdotal evidence that the contrary is the case. Right. Yes, that's all correct. Of course, it, could, it would be possible for there to be very strong and even ubiquitous conservative voices on social media, and there still could be a bias against them. In other words, they could be even more predominant, absent an alleged bias. But I think you can gain some circumstantial sense that the forms Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and the rest, you can gain some fragmentary circumstantial indication that there isn't a systematic effort to, to marginalize them by the fact that they are so prominent. Are some admittedly relatively narrow studies that tend to undercut the claim of an anti-conservative bias. So one study that I've written about shows that you do tend to see removal of Republican material more than Democratic material. But at the same time, the same study authors found that the Republican users of the platforms tend to recirculate material from sites that have been fied as in misinformation more frequently. So the inference you can draw from that is that, yes, Republican material does tend to get taken down more frequently, but that there's a reason for it, as opposed to it just being a function of straight bias. Uh, a race car study, drivers get more speeding tickets. Exactly. A different study at the Indiana University set up basically sort of neutral bots and then released them on Twitter. And what they found was that these neutral, you could call them sort of nonpartisan bots, tended actually to drift more to the right, to accumulate more engagement to the right than they did to the left, which the very cautious researchers at Indiana University said doesn't necessarily tell you that there's a strong bias favoring conservatives, but what it does tell you is there is not any evidence of a bias opposing conservatives. And then finally, I would point out that Twitter itself has done internal research, which people may discount, and this was Twitter in the pre-Elon Musk era, which found that activity on Twitter tended to show a slight pro-conservative bias, not a pro-liberal bias. So those are studies which I don't consider to be definitive in any way, but they all tend to suggest the absence of this conspiracy that Ted Cruz and others like to talk about so much. And obviously, it's those on the right who are claiming that the misinformation they spread is not misinformation, who are bringing the claims that there's bias against them, because they're the ones who are both violating platform rules more frequently, as well as recirculating the garbage. 
So it's an obvious, and the political usefulness to the right of claiming that there's conservative, that they're, that the more conservative posts are being deleted and taken down is obvious. It's to their political advantage to make this claim and start yelling about it. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And we're in a realm where it is difficult to keep the discussion calm and rational, because as you said, one person's misinformation is another person's article of faith. Among many Republicans, it is still, quote, true, close quote, that the 2020 election uh, was corrupt and that President Trump, former President Trump, was reelected. Whereas to the majority of people who would look at that with clear eyes, that's just false. So because we have come to have such a problem in our country in distinguishing truth from falsehood, this whole discussion is very difficult for people to, to have in a calm and rational way. Although I do think you point this out in your own study. I do think that it's not just the difficulty of kind of parsing what is truth. What's the difference between something I feel to be true and something that I know to be true? And it's not just a matter of political opportunism, as Paul was pointing out, there seems to be a very deliberate strategy to darvo, darvo being the technique of deny, attack, and most critically, reverse victim and offender. And what in the case of this claim of a persecution of the right by social media is what this is the way you wrote about it, quoting you, the claim of anti-conservative animus is itself a form of disinformation, a falsehood with no reliable evidence to support it. No trustworthy large-scale studies have determined that conservative content is being removed for ideological reasons or that searches are being manipulated to favor liberal interests. And so when you look at something like the hearings in the House Oversight Committee trying to make hay out of the Hunter Biden laptop story, trying to make a claim that Twitter was biased against President Trump, actually it blew up in their face because it revealed that it was Trump who was reaching out to Twitter saying, please take down Chrissy Teigen's mean tweets about me, please. It seems to me like a Darvo. It seems to me like an intentional strategy to claim that which you yourself are guilty of. That, as you pointed out, Paul, it's conservatives who are benefiting from, if anything, a bias at social media. And so in order to cover it for themselves, they claim that the opposite is true. Yeah, I think that's basically right. What I wrote in 2021, uh, not long after, after January 6th, was true then, and it remains true now. And it, it, I think it's undeniable that there is a much broader on the right that goes beyond social media, of course, to include Fox News, particularly its, its primetime commentators, a large number of news sites like Breitbart and online personalities like Ben Shapiro and others. I'm not sure whether they all get together in one big room and plan this out. I'm not sure they have to, but we've had for years a, an attempt to make voters who are on the right feel that they are the victims of a conspiracy. And you see this in connection with the operation of social media platforms. You see it in the discussion of public health policies in response to the pandemic. And you see it, of course, in connection with the sanctity of U.S. elections and the now uh, spreading notion, which has become an article of faith on the right, that we just can't do elections in an honest way anymore, so that any election is dishonest. The claim, of course, which is 
completely incoherent because it apparently doesn't apply when Republicans win. Then, the, then suddenly the elections are legitimate. But there's a, this is an argument that emphasizes the perfidy of media generally. In years past, this has just been mass media, the media who Donald Trump says is the enemy of the people. And gradually, beginning circa 20, beginning with the Trump ascendance, really, the argument was broadened to fold in social media. So now it was big tech and big media and the far left Democrats who are trying to marginalize you. The argument is not about a particular substantive position. It's not even really about ideology. It's, it's what the social scientists would call effective polarization. It's the demonization of the other side. We don't even have to get into specifics because we know they are just trying to silence you and exclude you from influence and power and the stature that you may have enjoyed in the past. And therefore, we on our side can use just about any tactic you can think of to fight that because they are the enemies of the people. They are the enemies of democracy. Therefore, the ends justify the means and you end up with spectacles like we had in the wake of the 2020 election with insane allegations about election fraud that just hadn't happened. And we're, we see unfolding right now at Fox News as a result of the Dominion libel suit, how within the main, main mainstream media organization on the right, Fox News, senior officials knew what they were saying on the air was false, and yet they facilitated it. And they went on and continued adding fuel to the fire of the election fraud conspiracy. So yes, this is absolutely part of a larger strategy. It is very popular on the right and very effective. The majority of Republicans, sad to say, and who themselves constitute some, I don't know, 30, 35% of the electorate overall. Um, Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I just want to cite a few facts and then ask you a question. Fox News last August came very close to sweeping the 100 most watched cable telecasts for the month. 94 of the top 113 cable news programs, according to Nielsen ratings, Fox News dominates NBC and CNN. There's 1,500 conservative radio stations across the country. Isn't it true that the right-wing media actually dominates, not only putting aside social media, dominates the traditional media environment? And how is it that, how, what is the left left with in the face of the right-wing dominance of traditional media? And then, and how can conservatives ignore that to make the claims they make about lamestream media and the left wing manipulating everything to their advantage. In answer to the question of how can they do it, if their political leaders tell them something is true over and over again, a lot of people will tend to believe that. The discrepancy we have is that Republican leaders from Donald Trump to Ron DeSantis on down are fully prepared to tell their people untrue things about how the world is working. Again, ranging from whether the intimations that uh, vaccine policies are part of some big government conspiracy to harm you, as opposed to being simply the government's best efforts, however imperfect they may be to try to staunch a, a lethal pandemic, casting that as part of some big conspiracy is part of this broader effort that includes hyper-partisan cable TV, it includes the on social media, it includes the activity of political elites. In other words, it matters who the top people are at the head of a movement. And it really mattered that for four or five years and continuing to some extent right 
to the present that the leader of the Republican Party has been Donald Trump, who simply shamelessly lies every time he opens his mouth. That there's a, it makes a difference when the leader of a party has no concern with accuracy or being seen as respectable or reasonable by his opponents. Joe Biden, by, con by contrast, is a guy who disagrees with plenty of people, but he's actually concerned about being seen as reasonable. He's not going to just say any damn thing that comes into his head or make up anything he, that occurs to him about his opponents. He has a sense of shame, a sense of balance, of proportion. And that's the discrepancy we have in our asymmetrical political situation at the moment. We're highly polarized, but the polarization is asymmetrical. The Republicans have moved farther to the right than Democrats have moved to the left. And you see this imbalance and you see it in every aspect of our political debate. And I think that that's a good term for it, even though it's a hundred dollar word is asymmetric. I know it's also a term of art among political scientists, but it, and it's not just how far each side has gone respectively toward the ideological extremes. It's also the lengths that they're each respectively willing to go to. And I think that's what this Fox News, what Paul's point is really demonstrating, is that it's pretty, there's a lot of chutzpah in this claim that conservatives are the victims here. Because what Paul is pointing out is the exact, in terms of volume of who reaches American brains, right wing media absolutely wipes the floor with mainstream media. Forget liberal media for a second, just talk about mainstream media. And then you think about the imbalance, and this is Paul Barrett, your point, other Paul, your point is that when you contrast Joe Biden and Donald Trump, everything he says is a lie. It's like the old Richard Nixon joke. How can you tell Donald Trump is lying? His lips are moving. Joe Biden says things that aren't true sometimes. He's a politician after all, but he makes an effort. He feels some adherence to the truth. He shades toward his point of view. He tries to persuade, he tries to argue, but he doesn't outright lie. And you see the same thing in media. There is, this is what this Dominion suit is showing is that Fox News does not care. They outright knowingly for the money lie. Whereas mainstream media outlets, look, you can criticize the New York Times till the cows come home and I'm happy to do it. I've done it on recent shows, but they make a bona fide effort. Some would say too much of an effort to play it down the middle and to give both sides perspectives. And so what you end up with is this asymmetry that you're talking about. You're, you have an unimpeded, unadulterated, unalloyed, every other un in the world, fire hose of misinformation and lies from one side. And you have the other side playing by a different set of rules and trying to restrain themselves. And it's not like the two sides are at equal volumes. The side on the right is louder. They're speaking with a megaphone and the mainstream media is just relatively smaller. All right, that's my that's my screed about all of this. But I want to I want to work our way back to the social media question because the other element of this that's this perfect storm, the problem is that the Supreme Court has been hearing the section 230 case. They had oral arguments 2 weeks ago. And this is the case that asks whether social media platforms should be liable, they should be treated as publishers, should they be liable for the things that are said and posted on their platforms. And this is where it begins to implicate what we ourselves have gone through 
with our video being wrongly taken down by a blind algorithm. So I guess, Paul Barrett, I wanted to start with this first question of, given the proliferation of misinformation, hate speech, and manipulation on social media, what did you make of that Supreme Court case? And really, is there a legal fix to the problem here? Okay, it's a complicated case, and your simple question, is there a fix, does not lead to a simple answer. The Supreme Court case, Gonzalez versus Google, in its, if you simplify it to its core, is about whether it should be easier to sue uh, social media platforms for the content that those forms carry on their, uh, on their venues. Right now, it is difficult to sue these platforms because of the law, Section 230, that you mentioned. Section 230 says that by and large, the platforms are not liable for third-party content that they host on their platforms. So if you want to go after, as in the case before the Supreme Court, the terrorists that have killed your blameless relative, you want to sue somebody civilly under the material support for terrorism law, the Anti-Terrorism Act, you have to go after the bad guys who have put the, the videos on YouTube and sue them, which of course is a totally impractical and never going to happen type of lawsuit. You can't sue YouTube would be the conventional interpretation of that. And a lot of people are outraged by that and say, why can't you hold YouTube liable? And, you know, that from a strictly policy point of view, uh, I think that's a reasonable question. And I think it would be entirely reasonable for Congress to go back to the law and say that while we think this general shield is one that promotes free speech on social media and has bequeathed us, has given us this free, free-flowing exchange of First Amendment-protected material, that terrorism propaganda is such an acute and painful problem that we're going to carve out an exception to Section 230 and say that for terrorism material, you can sue the platform that has hosted the material. And what effect might that have? Why might Congress do that? Congress might do that because thinking that if we make the platforms responsible in that fashion, they will be even more vigilant than they currently are about policing that kind of material and taking it down. Since that kind of material is already against the rules of all of the major platforms. To me, that would be a completely reasonable legislative process. I've suggested in writing in various places, that Congress ought to consider doing something like that if it can frame it very precisely. There are other exceptions to Section 230 that allow lawsuits to go forward. For example, in 2018, Congress added an exception for content related to sex trafficking. That was very controversial for a variety of reasons. But the fact is that right now, if your concern is that a given platform is hosting material that in some way encourages sex trafficking, and you can find a basis for going after them with a civil lawsuit, that lawsuit will not be blocked by Section 230. Section 230 in its original version had exceptions built into it. For example, violations of criminal law, violations of certain intellectual property law, and so forth. So Section 230, in a sense, is not as all-encompassing and as much of a hindrance as some people suggest that it is. But if one thinks that Section 230 should be refined, the place to do that is the legislative arena where members of Congress can weigh the costs and benefits of a given exception. The problem with the way that it's been approached at the Supreme Court is that the Supreme Court has been asked to basically create judicially an exception to, to Section 230. And the problem with 
that, as appealing as it may sound at a certain level, is that pretty much all that social media platforms do is recommend material. I was involved in writing an amicus brief on behalf of the Center for Business and Human Rights at NYU, in which we told the Supreme Court, do not create an exception for recommendations. That would be, that could unravel the entire statute and undermine Congress's intent in terms of protecting social media companies so that they will promote a lot of online communication. And instead, if you think there's a problem, tell Congress you think there may be a problem and then defer to Congress and let Congress rewrite the law. That's what Congress is supposed to do. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Actually, Matt and I recently recorded a show on called Balance of Power, and our guest, or part, our, we had a guest panelist who is a conservative journalist who edits a journal in New Hampshire, um, and he argued vociferously that that we need a, a free bird approach to social media, that we had to let our free flag fly, that the only regulation that was good enough for America was no regulation at all, that if we started regulating, free speech would no longer be free. You had a number of policy suggestions in your paper, and you argue, I think, essentially, in, in the recommendations you make, that that there could be a middle ground between government, all-out government regulation, we'll call it, and no rules at all, just the free play of ideas on these social media forms. Can you help us understand how you came to your recommendations and what kinds of ground for regulating social media? Sure. That's a, it's a great question. Again, a, a simple sounding question with only complicated answers if you really want to be honest about it. Let's first survey what the situation is right now. Right now, we have very imperfect self-regulation by social media platforms. They have quite elaborate sounding regulatory systems of their own. Now, that type of regulation, and we'll get to how good it is just in a second, is not, is not what the First Amendment is talking about. Company like Twitter or Meta or Google, which owns YouTube, has uh, a full and free opportunity to regulate what it puts on its platform as a private entity. They have, in a sense, the same ability to do that without government interference, but also without being accused of censoring anybody. They have the same right to do that as your hometown newspaper or the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal has the right to decide what articles to put in its newspaper, which these days is mostly online on websites and to some degree, some small number of print copies. In other words, private companies that are in the communication business are free to make choices about what they publish in the world and what they choose to amplify with whatever tools they choose to amplify those things. The First Amendment does not protect users of those sites from the self-regulation by the owners of those sites. So that's step number one. Step number two is the self-regulation that those sites are doing is imperfect, tending toward defective. Now you've discovered that- Agreed. You know, you've discovered that with your recent experience with what you perceive probably correctly as being the errant decision by a non-human algorithm to take something down because it's, it raised a topic that the website in question, the social media site in question, doesn't want to traffic in. And the irony was 
that you were actually criticizing the type of phony that the site itself wishes to not promote. And this is the problem of scale. These sites are so big and they, when, they are, when their user bases are measured in billions rather than hundreds of millions, they have to, by definition, use technology to help them screen material, at least in the first instance. I'm a big fan of their hiring many more human beings to do content moderation, but even I recognize that they couldn't possibly hire enough human beings to do that job entirely. And in any event, that would change the internet if everything had to go through a human reviewer before it posted. One of the purported joys of the internet is you can put things up relatively quickly without anybody second guessing you. So we've got this very imperfect self-regulation, rules that are contradictory, that are hard to understand, being enforced by opaque uh, algorithmic automated systems that we have barely any real understanding how they operate because these companies have been allowed to do that in secrecy, combined with inadequate workforces of human moderators who sadly are predominantly outsourced moderators who work for third-party companies like the people do who you call when your, your cell phone contract goes out of whack and you end up talking to somebody in Bangalore or Manila who doesn't seem to be all that familiar with the rules and regulations of the company. Sadly, that's the same way these companies get their content moderation done. They hire, in order to keep labor costs down, they hire people through third-party contractors and you end up with substandard activity, a lack of supervision, a lack of training. And in this case, a lack of, of mental health care for people who end up, a lot of them, looking at their screen all day while watching the worst that the internet has to offer. So you've got a very imperfect self-regulatory system. It would be ideal if these companies would regulate themselves uh, efficiently enough and effectively enough so that government wouldn't have to be involved. So we wouldn't be asking the question of, do we need government to step in? Unfortunately, their self-regulatory work has been inadequate. And the pleas from civil society guys and gals like me have fallen on deaf ears. And that tends to turn people's attention towards, so what can the government do? Now, the debate in Congress over the last three, four years has been just a total circus on this question, highly partisan with, again, sadly, the right wing tending to just mix everything up with a lot of conspiracy theories and allegations that confuse people and end up with there being no legislation passed. That said, what government could even possibly do is very limited. Why is it very limited? because these are businesses that traffic in expression. So the government cannot, under the First Amendment, set policies for what stays on these platforms and what must come down. The government cannot get involved in individual decisions of a particular piece of content, up or down, on or off. The government cannot get into decisions as to whose account should be removed. Does Donald Trump deserve to be on Facebook or not? That is not a question for the government. And as a result, the arena, the range of activity that the government can undertake is limited. Some people have fixated on revising Section 230. I think that's a very limited approach. You're basically taking a deregulatory law, a law that protects companies and saying, let's make it a little less protective. It may make sense in certain areas, such as what we were talking about before, terrorism-related material. But I don't think you're going to get thoroughgoing government oversight by making an exception to a pro-company protective law. 
The proposal that I've made over the course of doing a number of reports, and then I eventually pulled this all together last year, is that that the Congress should be considering enhancing the Consumer Protection Authority of the Federal Trade Commission as a means for extending procedural oversight of social media companies in a fashion that is just not being done systematically right now. And I'll be happy to explain what I mean by procedural oversight, but I've been going on for a long time. So I'll leave it there for it. Look, the tagline of our show could be, there's no simple answer to this. And so we appreciate on Beyond Politics getting into some of the nuance. Look, I'm going to take once again, the narcissistic approach to this and just looking at my own recent experience as the lens here. I was, I actually did a preempt case for your kind of middle road approach on our earlier show that Paul was just alluding to me. I agree that the extreme choices here are not really choices at all. You can't have the government step in and regulate this. Paul, look, you're a former member of Congress. The prospect, I think you've spoken to this, the prospect of a bunch of people, no offense, man, like you trying to come in with a one-size-fits-all regulatory solution is not attractive. You agree? Yeah. Frankly, a lot of the people in Congress aren't like me at all. And that's, well, that's really true. scary. You're, you're actually, you're on the you're on the high functioning end of the technological awareness spectrum. <laughs> it's you're true. You're on the spectrum, I, man, is what yeah, I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. But on the other hand, I am not particularly attracted to the Wild West approach either. And the idea of shoot everybody and let them get sorted out at the pearly gates is not going to work for America. We've seen the consequences of when social media misinformation runs wild. Just looking through the lens of, we did a show, a serious show with a serious journalist profiled in the New York Times at around the same time frame you were putting out your paper for her work exposing election misinformation with this same video content already up on YouTube. And we get tripped up on an algorithm. And I'm not here to attack YouTube. I think they're doing a pretty decent job but I think that's the point. I think this shows just how hard it is. As you said, you're talking about billions of hours of video uploaded every year. There is no way to human police that. So what would the experience look like under your plan for someone like me that would fix these kinds of problems and at least make people feel like there's a rational and even-handed approach to policing misinformation, but letting speech get through. Yeah. The first thing I'm going to say will, will not be particularly satisfying to you, which is on a platform like YouTube with the with a user base of, bil of billions of people, 500, 500 million hour video being posted a day, there are going to be mistakes. That's just you want the mistakes to not be motivated by bad intent. You don't want the mistakes to be part of some systematic effort to silence one side or the other side. But there will be mistakes. Uh, the algorithms that are built, to, which use artificial intelligence to try to identify certain categories of material that the company in turn is identifying as the sorts of things they don't want on their platform, those things will, those technologies are imperfect and will from time to time make mistakes. Here's the approach that I would recommend um, that Congress consider expanding on existing authority that the Federal Trade Commission has had since 1915, to root out unfair and deceptive commercial practices. That's statutory authority that the FTC has. 
normally so that the FTC would set up a social media or digital bureau within its consumer protection unit. And that would have would hire people who are experts, ranging from experts in technology to experts in First Amendment law. And they would work on two broad areas to try to improve the performance of social media without interfering with free speech in a way that violates the First Amendment. The first broad area is transparency. We don't understand right now, sitting here today talking, you know, why exactly the algorithm at YouTube seems to have malfunctioned and plucked out your content and resulting in the company then disciplining you and saying you're locked out for whatever it is a week. And there is no, there's no reason other than YouTube's proprietary interests that we can't know how those algorithms operate. For example, we could demand that YouTube and its, its sister sites tell us what are the 20 top criteria that, you use, that your algorithms use to remove content. We could demand disclosure enforced by the FTC in the same way that, for example, the chemical industry has to tell the government what's the content of chemicals. And the equity markets, people active in the stock markets, have to disclose all kinds of information. The government would not run to your rescue. You could not go to the FTC and appeal to the FTC because we don't want the FTC to be ruling on individual cases having to do with what gets taken down or not taken down. But instead, the FTC could ask questions such as, how many human content moderators do you employ? Now, if all of this sounds like inadequate, not comprehensive, not sufficient to, for example, solving the problem that you've run into in recent days, you know what? It is. Because in the end, this is a speech business. And in the end, as frustrating as it may be, we are going to have to rely on this business itself, the corporations in this business, to self-regulate. Because in our country, under the First Amendment, we do not want the government dictating what goes on these platforms. So it's a partial, not silver bullet, not panacea approach to regulation. Look, it strikes me that your solution is like democracy itself. It's the worst solution except for all of the alternatives. And in fact, it's, look, it's, is it messy? Yes. Is it any worse than Big Brother, the government coming in and deciding everything? Clearly not. Is it any worse than letting, you know, like the, how'd you put it, Paul Hodes, the freak flag fly? No, it's not. So I really appreciate the creativity and for at least thinking about how we might make things a little bit better. But let's leave people with this final thought. If you've ever wondered, whether you're getting gaslighted by right-wingers with their play a thousand tiny violins sonata, we are persecuted. We are the victims here. These folks are not being persecuted. They are not the victims here. They are the beneficiaries of a tremendous amount of media thumb on the scale for their point of view. And thank you for walking us through all of this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation.